thanks so much for leading us this morning. What an incredible uh, time it is to gather and worship. I'm a little out of breath, not just because I'm picking up this heavy pulpit, because I'm dancing over here, enjoying the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you've been blessed. Our worship team has gone to great effort to prepare that uh, worship set for us. It blessed my heart. I know it will your day that we can worship Jesus. Amen. No matter what's going on in your life today, no matter what your struggle's been this week, no matter how bad the news gets, Jesus is alive, and he saved your soul if you're in Christ today, and that gives us reason to shout with great joy and incredible uh, happiness and gladness in God today because of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to transition to our preaching, and so if you're uh, taking notes this morning, we have the uh, note outline available for you there on our website, and the title of this morning's sermon is going to be Jonah, Jesus, and You. It's kind of got a unique sound to it, but we're going to find it to be true out of Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. Let's read about this story about Jonah, Jesus, and you. Here we are again, Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, Generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this text this morning and learn a little bit about what is the sign of Jonah, and how does that connect with Jesus, and why does that matter here on resurrection, that you would keep us alert, keep us attentive, Help us to learn what you want us to learn on this special Sunday morning so that we might live it out in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are. We made it to Resurrection Sunday. And I can just tell you this. I never thought in a million years that I would ever preach to an empty church here on Easter morning. Well, it's almost empty. We got a handful of people, the band mainly, and some technicians that are helping us out. But it's almost like the rapture has happened, and your pastor and your worship team has been left behind. I mean, I don't know how you guys felt growing up as a kid, but there were times, that was my biggest fear, that somehow the rapture would happen, and I would miss it. Or maybe, uh, you know, it, it's, it's you that's missed it this morning, because we're here. We're here in the presence of God. But I know as a kid growing up, sometimes if it was kind of quiet early in the morning, I would go check on my parents just to make sure they were still in home from an afternoon or evening an appointment. appointment. Then I would go check and, and just to make sure that they were still alive, because I knew they were going to heaven, and I wanted to go to heaven with them. Uh, but the truth is, this morning, the rapture hasn't happened, though we long for it to. We can't wait for the, the rapture or the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth is also this this morning, the coronavirus cannot stop Resurrection Sunday. You may be at home, and I may be here at church, but we are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're celebrating it together. COVID-19 can't contain us. 
the quarantine cannot quell our gathering, and the pandemic can't prevent us from worshiping our risen Savior. And we are here this morning to lift high the name of Jesus. We're here to worship his holy name. And we are here to exalt the risen Christ. The Jews couldn't stop crushing him and the grave couldn't hold him. He is risen. He is alive. And he reigns forevermore. Amen? Well, I hope that you're encouraged by those truths this morning. Well, let me ask you, did you hear about the little girl who wasn't trying to start a theological debate. She just wanted to make a point about Jesus's resurrection. Her Sunday school teacher had tried to encourage her class with the assurance that Jesus is everywhere. But for Mackenzie, that just didn't sound right. So she said, I know one place where Jesus isn't. The teacher curiously replied, oh really? Where is that? The bright little girl declared, He's not in the grave. Well, how about that? We know that's true this morning, right? Jesus is everywhere, but he is not in the grave. What a great present Lord has chosen to keep his presence absent from the grave. For just as the angel said, he is not here. For he is risen, as he said, come let us see the place where the Lord lay. And then there was the five-year-old Brian who had a pivotal verse to recite and an Easter program. He is not here. He is risen from Luke 24, 6. Unfortunately, he could not remember what to say, and so the director had to quietly remind him of his line. He then confidently grabbed the microphone, and he triumphantly shouted, He's not here. He's in prison. Well, you got to give it up for that little guy trying to get it right and then shouting out the wrong thing. Or how about the man that was driving his children to church on Easter Sunday? He was trying to explain that Easter was when we celebrate Jesus. And from the back seat, his little three-year-old piped up, will he be in church today, daddy? Now, that's just the simple love of a three-year-old, isn't it? He's raised from the dead, so we're just assuming he's going to be in church. And actually, the answer is, yes, he is. He's right here in church, and he's also in your home today, and he's in your heart today if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I, I love a post that my wife read to me earlier this week from a friend of hers in Michigan where Lisa grew up, and the post read like this. I'll just quote it for you. Uh, here's the post. It said this, after the president's news conference was over, one of the reporters made the observation that for the first time in our nation's history, we won't be celebrating Easter. And this is where Lisa's friend just kind of sounded off. She said, well, let me tell you one thing. That reporter is wrong. We might not celebrate Easter in our country as a, as a secular society. There may be no new clothes bought that Sunday. We may not hide and hunt eggs in mass quantities. We may not travel home to attend church with our family. We may not see some folks at our worship services that we haven't seen since Christmas, but we're going to celebrate Easter. As a matter of fact, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every time we assemble for worship, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pilate couldn't kill him. The grave couldn't hold him. You think the coronavirus is going to stop Easter? Easter is not just about special programs. It's the fact that we serve a living Savior 
who is still transforming lives today. Easter is not only about his resurrection, but about our ability to rise with him. Easter is about the hope of tomorrow and the gift of everlasting life. Yes, indeed, we will celebrate. We will celebrate what God did for us at Calvary. How? By worshiping him, by remembering him, by loving him, by praising him. Easter for us is every day. Let the celebration begin. Close quote. Well, I just love that reminder, right? That nothing can stop Easter Sunday. In fact, I would say to you, the only thing that can stop Easter Sunday would be the second coming of Christ himself. Because then we wouldn't be worshiping Jesus on this earth, but we would be with him in heaven forevermore singing praises to the king. Amen. That's the only thing that can stop Easter Sunday is the return of Christ. Well, this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 32 through 48, or excuse me, verses 38 to 42. Matthew 12, 38 to 42, and we're going to learn some interesting details about Easter. As you see, the title of the sermon is Jonah, Jesus, and You. And so I want to give you three headings this morning, and again, you can take these notes off our website if you like to help you keep track. Three headings this morning that will help us, remind us about the prophecy and the power of the resurrection. The prophecy and the power of the resurrection seen in these three headings that we'll look at this morning. The first heading is this, number one, the skeptic. In your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, just simply says, should have known better. The skeptic should have known better. Look at verse 38. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, let me just pause there and help you parachute down into Matthew in the middle of this incredible gospel. Matthew's gospel was written to show the Jews that Jesus, is, and it was, it was uh, written to show Jews that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And in the flow of Matthew, chapters 1 through 11, there has been the presentation of the king in Matthew 1 through 4, the proclamation of the king in chapters 5 through 7, the power of the king in chapters 8 through 11, and then something changes. After those first 11 chapters of Matthew, we then get into chapter 12, where we start to see the protest of the king. Now the Jews began to push back big time on the Lord Jesus Christ. And after some controversy earlier in chapter 12 over the practice of some minimal Sabbath labor, and after even more controversy over when Jesus did a Sabbath healing, the Pharisees get together and they plan to destroy Jesus. In fact, they claim that Jesus had committed the sin of blasphemy. Jesus actually had violated the Sabbath thus making himself more important than the Sabbath, which is true, but they claimed that was blasphemy. And they claimed that Jesus was being blasphemous by casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. So they claimed that he has basically committed this cardinal sin of blasphemy that would lead to his own death. The Pharisees say this to Christ, and so Jesus responds to them in Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then Jesus says in verses 36 and 37, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will account for every careless word that they speak, for by your words you will be justified 
and by your words you will be condemned. In other words, the Pharisees were acting holy, and they were acting like they were just given a lot of lofty religious talk, but their hearts were evil. And by confronting Jesus and accusing him of being a blasphemous worker of the devil, Jesus then warns them that they indeed will be condemning themselves with their own careless words. And this brings us up and gives us a little context to where we are this morning in verse 38 when it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They are really saying, All right then, Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, then prove it. Show us that you're the Messiah. We need to see a sign. Now, I'm saying that they're skeptical because they should have known better. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were actually experts in the in order to be one of those scribes, you had to be at least 30 years of age. You had to have spent many years in intensive study of the Hebrew scriptures and other Jewish writings. And they were known to be the supreme interpreters and teachers of the law. These scribes were authorized and they were, had the best interpretation, they believed, as lawyers of Judaism, and they were generally held in very high honor. And so my statement to them would be, if they really knew their Old Testament, then they would have known that Jesus had indeed done every sign and every wonder that was prophesied that he would do. I mean, even up to this point, even though we're in Matthew chapter 12, he had already fulfilled many of these prophecies. For example, it was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah would be born of a woman, and he was. It was prophesied in Micah 5.2 that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and Isaiah 7.14, it says that he would be born of a virgin, and he was. Genesis 12.3 says that he would come from the line of Abraham, and he did. Genesis 17.19 says that he would be a descendant of Isaac, and he was. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 says that he would also be a descendant of Jacob, and he is. It was prophesied in Genesis 49.10 that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, and he did. It was prophesied in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, that the Messiah would be an heir to David's tribe, or would be an heir, excuse me, to David's throne, and he was. It was prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 15, that there would be a massacre of children at the Messiah's birthplace there in Bethlehem, and there was. Hosea 11:1 1 says the Messiah would spend the season in Egypt, and he did. Psalm 8, raised by little children. And he was. Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 says that a messenger would prepare the way for the Messiah. And John the Baptist did. Isaiah 53 3 says that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people. And he was. Isaiah 9 1 through 2 says that the Messiah would bring light to Galilee. And he did. It was prophesied in Psalm 78 2 that the Messiah would speak in parables. And he did. And it was prophesied in Psalm 110, verse 4, that the Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he was. So I'm saying to you this morning, why couldn't the scribes, if they were so smart, if they knew the Old Testament so well, how could they have not seen the fact that Jesus had already fulfilled all of these prophecies? Answer, because they were blind. They were blinded. And the truth is, they didn't really want 
Jesus, to be the Messiah, because that meant it would change their whole paradigm of what the Messiah would look like. You see, the Jews really wanted a military leader. They really wanted a political leader to free them from Rome. That's what they wanted. In fact, I would say they wanted someone to set them free from Rome, not someone to set them free from their sins. They were more concerned about their physical prowess than they were about their spiritual regeneration. And if you're listening this morning and you don't see Jesus as the Savior of the world, and and if you don't see Jesus as really the answer to all of your problems, it is because you are blind to the things of God. Oh, you can see what you want to see, but you can't see Jesus Christ and the eternal change that he could bring. And so I'm saying to you this morning on resurrection morning, open your eyes, repent of your sins, look to the Jesus of the Bible, put your faith in him, and he will redeem your life. Don't be like one of the Pharisees, a skeptic, making Jesus jump through all your humps, all your, all your hoops, I should say, before you say that you would trust in him. Just come to him this morning. See him as the risen king and have your life changed forever. Now, these skeptics of the first century, I'm saying they should have known better. All of the Old Testament pointed to all of who Jesus was, and they demanded yet to see more. And so notice here in the middle of verse 38, that second blank there says they sarcastically address Jesus. Notice what they say. Again, verse 38, some of the scribes and teacher, let me just pause right there. I'm saying to you this morning that using the word teacher was not a sign of respect. Sometimes we think of it as a respectful way to address somebody, but these scribes and Pharisees didn't think that anybody knew more about the Old Testament than they did. Unfortunately, these scholars also held in high regard the rabbinic traditions set forth in the Talmud. And they didn't even hold to the scriptures alone as their authoritative source, but they gave authority to other Jewish writings as well. The scribes and the Pharisees considered anyone outside of their own discipline and training unworthy to instruct them on anything. Their ego was bigger than Mount Whitney. So when they addressed Jesus' teacher, trust me, they did so sarcastically. They didn't think Jesus was a good teacher. They had just accused him of blasphemy and, and of working for the devil. They didn't think Jesus was smart, stupid. They thought that he worked for the prince of demons. They thought that Jesus was a heretic. They thought that Jesus was a false teacher. And so the scribes and the Pharisees were not wanting to learn something from the teacher, but they were trying to trick and even tempt Jesus. They were using the same ploy that Satan himself had used when Jesus was out in the wilderness and Satan kept trying to say, hey, Here's a stone. Why don't you turn this into bread? And there's the temple. Why don't you jump off of it and the angels will catch you? Satan was trying to get Jesus just to do miracles at his beckoning call. And these Pharisees and these scribes are trying to get Jesus to do the same thing. These men actually hated Jesus and they wanted to control him. And so they sarcastically called him teacher and they just wanted to see demand. At the end of verse 38, it says, teacher, again, we wish... We, uh, we wish to see a sign from you. So your next blank says a skeptic seeks a sign. What does a skeptic do? Well, a skeptic is someone who is going to really doubt that Jesus is who he said he was. 
They should have known better. A skeptic is somebody who we see again here, uh, they, they sarcastically address Jesus. And then a skeptic is someone who just demands to see more signs. And it's really unbelievable that they were asking Jesus for another sign. Up to this point, Jesus had already done hundreds of miracles. Jesus had already turned the water into wine. He had already healed the official son. He had already driven out an evil spirit from a man in Capernaum. He had healed Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with a fever. Jesus had already cleansed the man with leprosy. He had healed a centurion's paralyzed servant. He had healed the paralytic who was let down from the roof. Jesus had healed a man's withered hand. Jesus had, uh, he had raised a widow's son from the dead. He had calmed the storm upon the sea. He had cast out a legion of demons into a herd of pigs. He had healed a woman in the crowd with an issue of blood. He had raised Jairus' daughter back to life. He had healed two blind men. Jesus had healed a man who was unable to speak. He had healed an invalid at Bethesda. And all of these miracles Jesus had already performed up to this point. What do you mean we wish to see a sign from you? When John the Baptist had asked Jesus through his disciples, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them this way in Luke 7, through 23, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus' answer was, yes, I am the Messiah. What more proof do you need? I have done all of these miracles, many of them messily be fulfilled by Jesus himself as the telltale sign that he is indeed the Son of God. Certainly, the Jews had come to expect miraculous signs from every big prophet of God. Moses parted the Red Sea, Elijah called down fire from heaven, but these Pharisees would never be satisfied. They yearned for more signs like an alcoholic yearns for another drink. They yearn for more signs like a drug addict yearns for another drug. They demanded signs like the crowd demands the magician to do another magic trick. And the problem is that no sign would ever be enough for their wicked hearts. And Jesus wasn't about to let their wish be his command. And if they had not believed in the result of so many wonders, why would they be convinced with one more? Jesus could have done one more, one more, and he could have done one more, and they would have demanded one more. Jesus was not going to succumb to these arrogant, jealous, and conniving leaders of Israel. If Jesus had given them one more sign on demand, then he would have catered to their unbelief and allowed them to set the standards of faith. Miracles were not a part of Jesus's uh, proclamation, uh, excuse me, miracles were a part of Jesus's proclamation of the gospel, not a performance. So Jesus did those miracles to bring authenticity to who he was as the savior of the world. He wasn't just out there randomly doing miracles. Miracles were a part of Jesus's proclamation of the gospel, not a performance. Instead, Jesus rebukes them sternly. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The nation of Israel Throughout the old times, they had become infatuated with the externals of their faith. They didn't really want to listen to the prophets of old nor of Jesus here in the first century. And so they just wanted him to do some more miracles. Maybe they thought at this point that somehow he would run out of power and then they could expose him as a powerless imposter. 
Jesus said this was an evil and adulterous generation. They were evil because of their hypocrisy and their pride and their hardness of heart. And they were committing spiritual adultery because of their idolatry, their love for their man-made laws. And they had traded true righteousness for a righteousness of their own. And in so doing, they're committing spiritual adultery. Now, when Israel would turn away from their covenant relationship with God throughout the Old Testament, they were called out and confronted as committing. An example would be Hosea chapter 9, verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Now, that's strong language, but that's the language that the prophets used in the Old Testament, that you're playing the whore. Jesus is saying that you are an adulterous generation. You've abandoned your God who loves you and who sent the prophets to you and now who has sent his son to you. And not only have you abandoned him, you're going to look for your love and your satisfaction and your purpose in something else. And that's called idolatry. And that's why Jesus confronts this generation who's seeking another sign as being evil and committing adultery. Now, J.C. Ryle says this about the scribes and the Pharisees, flatter themselves that they only require a little more proof to become decided Christians. They fancy that if, they, if their reason and intellect could only be met with some additional arguments, they would at once give up all for Christ's sake. Take the cross and follow him. But in the meantime, they wait. Alas, for their blindness, they will not see that there is an abundance of evidence on every side of them. The truth is that they do not want to be convinced, close quote. Well, I wonder if that's true of you this morning, that the actual problem is not whether or not Jesus did enough miracles. It's not whether or not in your life you've seen God move in ways that you've demanded him to move. In fact, maybe some of us could relate to what the Pharisees and what the scribes were doing. Maybe at some point in your life you've said something like, for me when I needed him or because I said this prayer and he didn't show up or if God were, were just here to do this or do that, I would believe in him. If you've ever said anything like that, then that qualifies you specifically or uh, officially as being a skeptic. I mean, anytime we make demands of God that he's got to do this or that or prevent this or that in order for me to believe in him, I'm now putting myself in the driver's seat and I'm telling God that he better respond to what I'm saying or I'm not going to do what he's saying. And if that's you this morning, I would like to say to you, you know what, you should have known better. You should know better than that this morning because God revealed himself to you through this world. Through creation, he's made it known to you. Through your conscience, he's made it known to you. And through Christ, he's made it known to you that he's a loving God and that he desires to have a relationship with you. Don't be a skeptic any longer of God of what he has to do in order to meet you where you are. Instead, I would just encourage you to bow the knee right here, right now in your home in your car, wherever you're listening to this message at any time throughout this year, could be this morning on Easter morning or throughout this year, let me just encourage you, bow the knee to Jesus Christ. He loves sinners like you. And if you'll turn to him, he will give you everlasting life. 
I would say to you, don't be sarcastic with God this morning. See him for who he really is. He is a loving father who extends grace and forgiveness to all those who call upon him by faith. Are you a doubter this morning? Come to Jesus. Are you broken this morning? Then come to Jesus. Are you afraid this morning? Then come to Jesus and he will by no means cast you out. Well, let's look now, says this, number two, the sign of Jonah. Your next blank there says the story of Jonah. Now we're here in verses 39 and verse 40, when it says, uh, the end of verse 39 says, but Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now the scribes and the Pharisees want a sign from Jesus proving that he is the Messiah. And Jesus says, no sign will be given except through the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, as you remember, Jonah was the Old Testament prophet of the northern 10 tribes of Israel. He was commissioned by God to go to Nineveh to pronounce God's judgment upon this wicked city. Now, Nineveh was perhaps the largest city at that time in the Middle East with about 600,000 people. They worshiped the fishy. They also worshiped Dagon, the fish god, who was represented as half man and half fish. And the evil of that city rose up against God. They were a wicked city who did many wicked things. And so God wanted Jonah to go tell Nineveh that in 40 days the city would be overthrown. Now, as long as serving God fit into Jonah's plan for his life and for his ministry, he was fine with it. But as soon as God asked him to do something that was out of the ordinary and totally different and took a lot of courage, Jonah had to make a choice between serving the true God of the Bible or the God that he actually worshiped. And Jonah's love for Israel was more foundational to his faith than his love for a God of all nations. You see, Jonah knew that if he warned Nineveh that they might, they repented, then God would have mercy on them. And Jonah despised Nineveh so much that he didn't want it to go well with them. Jonah's anger was not necessarily marked by outbursts of rage, but by a slow burn within. And this led to a withdrawal from those around him and a growing preoccupation with the interests of his own life. However, this reluctant prophet turns out to be the most successful evangelist of the Old Testament. And the way it happens is totally out of the ordinary. When God calls Jonah to travel 500 miles to the east, he buys a ticket on a boat going 2,000 miles west. Jonah wants to get out. And even while he's getting out of the area where God had called him to, he's on this ship with a lot of heathen sailors, and he gets to be a witness to them. Well, when Jonah boards the ship to flee to Tarshish, which was known as being the edge of the ancient world, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a storm so great that the ship was about to break apart. And the sailors were afraid, and each one cried out to his own God, but to no avail. And so they finally found Jonah, who had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. They woke Jonah up, and they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, and they asked him, what have you done? Jonah told the soldiers, 
or the sailors rather, that he was a Hebrew and that he feared the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then Jonah told them that he was fleeing the presence and the command of his God. And on and on, Jonah told them that the only way to stop the storm would be to pick him up and to hurl him out into the sea, and then the storm would stop. And at first, even these heathen uh, sailors didn't want to do that, but they were left with no choice. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and at that moment, the storm ceased from its raging. And the Bible tells us this at the end of Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, this is the reference that Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 12. Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, which means that he wasn't in the belly of the fish forever. He was only in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Chapter 2 of Jonah tells us that while Jonah was in the belly of the fish, that he prayed and Jonah called out to the Lord in his distress, and the Lord answered him. And Jonah repented while he was in the belly of this big fish. Jonah says in Jonah 2 verse 7, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And so there's the moment there where he's like came to his senses. He remembers there's a God who loves him and a God who's called him. And he's calling out to God and his prayer is making it into the presence of God. And in Jonah 2 verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And so now he's specifically confessing his sin. I was worshiping an idol of my own making and it was ruining my life. I was forsaking the steadfast love that you give, O Lord. And then in verse 9, we see clearly that his heart had been made right with God. Jonah 2, 9. But I, with the voice sacrifice to you, what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so at that moment, we now see Jonah's basically saying, all right, God, I'm going to do exactly what you've called me to do. Salvation belongs to you. And you can give it to whoever you want. And I need it right now in the middle of the belly of this well. And the Ninevites need it. And you need it today. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know what? Sometimes it takes being swallowed up by a big fish and taken into a dark place so that you can hear from God. God so often brings us to the place to force us to let go of our own personal agenda. Jonah had to be shoved out of the boat or he would have never reached Nineveh. Maybe God wants you to be shoved out of the boat of your comfort this morning. If you're running from God this morning, you might need a route away in the wrong direction. Or if you are walking with God this morning, maybe God's calling you to pack up and to move to the mission field. And you've been afraid, just like Jonah. Let me encourage you today that whatever God's calling you to do, he'll empower you to do it. He'll give you a great joy in doing it. It won't be something that you'll be running from, but something you'll be running to. If God's really in it, if he's really called you, then he's equipped you, he's empowered you, and I believe he's going to energize you to do exactly what he's calling you to do. And no sooner than that, the next verse tells us, Jonah 2.10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Tim Keller said about this passage, quote, 
the usual place to learn the greatest secrets of God's grace is at the bottom. Isn't that true? So many times it's when we're at the very bottom of our side and we see his love for us and his grace extended to us. And that's exactly what happened to Jonah. He reached rock bottom and there he met the mercy and the grace of God. Jonah then did go to Nineveh and he preached on God's judgment. And guess what happened? Nineveh repented. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I mean, God wanted Jonah to participate in this amazing event of God's grace. God wanted Jonah to see God work in the hearts of a rebellious people and to bring them to saving faith. God wanted Jonah to see the power of the gospel works in those that you might have never expected. And yet Jonah was so fixated on his own life and comfort that he couldn't see that. He was blind to it. And so Jonah ran. And unfortunately, he thinks he's running for his life, but the thing is, he was running from his life. You see, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and it chases you and brings you into conformity to all that God's called you to. Dear Christian, don't run from God's call in your life. Run to God. Run to that person and tell them about Christ. Run towards the battle line by faith and see what God will do. And in Jonah 3.10, we read, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, talking about the Ninevites, when God saw what they did, he relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Our God shows mercy. He's the lost. Our God saves the destitute. Our God saves the rebel. Our God saves all who repent of their sin and who trust in Christ by faith. And I believe that the book of Jonah can be understood as God moving someone, Jonah, who was stuck in his own culture, Israel, and in his own comfort into the unknown. God is moving Jonah from the mere drudgery and duty of the Christian life into a sense of personal call and empowering faith and a mission that requires courage. Jonah is a prophet who in many ways struggled with what every man and woman struggles with, and that is the sin of inadequacy. When we feel inadequate, we lack the confidence to confront the darkness within and without. When we feel inadequate, we lack the energy to fight. When we feel inadequate, then we are more likely to succumb to the pain and even become like Jonah, who was willing to give it all up in order to find the false serenity of non-existence. You understand what I'm saying this morning? If you feel inadequate, it's because you're not experiencing the power of God. You can never do what God's called you to do unless he has saved you and filled you up with his power, by his grace, so that you can be a prophet like Jonah who would go far and wide to do exactly what it is that God's called you to do. And so what does God do? He redeems Jonah. God showed Jonah that he was loved and he heard Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. Jonah 
is a true story. We know that because Jesus references it right here. It's a true story to change its readers, to, to encourage them to come to know a God who is bigger than the one that they are presently familiar with. Billy Graham said, quote, In Jonah's day, Nineveh was the lone world superpower, wealthy, unconcerned, and self-centered. When the prophet Jonah finally traveled to Nineveh and proclaimed God's warning, people heard and repented. I believe that same thing can happen once again, this time in our nation. It's something I long for, close quote. You got to love the evangelist Billy Graham. He's like, hey man, if it happened in Nineveh, it can happen right here in Los Angeles. It can happen in New York. It can happen in Chicago. It can happen in Atlanta. It can happen in Dallas. It can happen anywhere because our God grants repentance to all who call upon him. What a great reminder that God can and he will save all who repent. We might be in the middle of a battle with coronavirus. We might be in the middle of a quarantine. We might not yet know the effects of this pandemic. But one thing we do know, we repent, we will all likewise perish. And so my message to you this morning is to watch the king of Nineveh and see what he did because he repented. In fact, Jonah 3 verse 7 says, then he issued a proclamation and published uh, it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let him call upon our God mightily. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Well, the king of Nineveh said, who knows? If we turn from our sin and turn to God, maybe God will grant us forgiveness. And we know today that's exactly what God did. God granted forgiveness. God granted this generation of Ninevites that they would be born again, that they would be saved. You know what I would say to you? Maybe we're not necessarily in sackcloth and ashes as a country repenting of sin because we're just quarantined for the coronavirus, but we should be. We should be this morning based on even the message of Jonah. For those of us who are Christians as we're quarantined, we should be thinking about, you know what? There's some, some similarities here. We should, we should sit and think about how much God loves us and how much we have an opportunity to share that love with the lost and dying world. And unless our neighbors repent, they will perish. Unless you repent, you will perish. This is an opportunity for you to rise up and to be that evangelist that God's called you to be and to share Christ far and wide with all those that you see. And trust me, for anybody who repents, they will be saved if they look to Jesus Christ. What an encouraging message that the story of Jonah really is. Well, now that we've, that could be a sermon on its own, I know. But now that we've kind of reviewed the story of Jonah, let's see now how this plugs in to exactly where our text is. And let's look at the sign of Jonah explained. The end of verse 40, now that we've been reminded of the story, what is the sign of Jonah? So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Listen, the sign of Jonah is explained here by Jesus, and it is very simple. Jesus is saying, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will I be in the heart of the earth 
three days and three nights. And just as Jonah emerged on the third day and finished his mission, so will Jesus emerge from the grave on the third day and finish his mission as well. Jesus will not give this generation any more signs except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is the resurrection. The sign of Jonah is that Jesus will come back to life in three days. Jesus is saying to the scribes and to the Pharisees, you may be planning, but I will be resurrected back to life on the third day. I mean, Jesus had already said that in John 2, 19 through 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as that of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, sometimes the matter of three days and three nights is brought up either to prove that Jesus was mistaken about how long he would actually be in the grave or that he could not have been crucified on Friday afternoon and then be raised by the dead morning. So how do we square that? Jesus says three days and three nights, and yet it doesn't seem like he was in the grave for 72 hours. But the truth is the phrase day and night can mean a literal 24-hour period of time, or it can also mean to any part of any day. The Jewish Talmud held that, quote, any part of a day is as the whole, close quote. This means that according to the Jewish reckoning, that when Jesus said three days and three nights, he was not meant to refer, it was not meant to refer to a 72-hour period, but rather a general reference to Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Since Jesus died and was placed in the grave on Friday afternoon, that counts for one day and night. And we know he was in the grave all day Saturday. That counts for a second day and night. And then he was in the grave for part of early, early Sunday morning. That counts for the third day and night. And so according again to the Jewish reckoning of time, Jesus was indeed in the grave three days and three nights. Now what is interesting about this to me is not so much it's exactly how long he would be in the grave. Though I think it's important that we understand that scripture is accurate. The point really is that Jesus would be raised at all. That's the whole point. The point isn't necessarily that he'd be in the grave three days and three nights, or if Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, which I believe they were. But the point is they were only in the grave and only in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, which means they weren't there forever, which means they had to be raised from the dead. So really the sign of Jonah isn't so much about pointing to the timing of how much time they're in the belly of the earth or in the belly of the well or the big fish, but so much so that they were coming out. And as they come out for Jonah, he would go preach the gospel to the Ninevites and continue to preach the gospel to the world. This is Jesus affirming, and this phrase, three dates and three nights, is the sign of Jonah. This phrase is affirming the past and prophesying about his future resurrection at the same time. Now, this leads us to our final point this morning. Number three, the Savior's proclamation, where he says in verse 41, 
something greater than Jonah is here. Look at verse 41, and this kind of wraps off everything we've laid out for you already this morning. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, what's going on here? The point that Jesus is trying to make is simple again. It's this, if the wicked Gentile Ninevite repented, why couldn't these so-called righteous Jews repent? I mean, these were Jesus's own people. They should have expected Jesus. They should have welcomed Jesus. They should have listened to Jesus. Well, let me give you five comparisons between the story of Jonah and the Ninevites and the, the Ninevites that he preached to, and the story of Jesus, and the scribes and the Pharisees that he preached to. Just listen to these five comparisons and contrasts, because that's part of what Jesus is doing here. First of all, Jesus is the great prophet, the Son of God himself, who addresses his audience again and again, and he calls them to repent. While Jonah was a minor prophet who preached to the Ninevites just one time. Second, Jesus was the Christ who was completely sinless, who was filled with wisdom and compassion. While Jonah was a prophet who was sinful, foolish, and acted out as a rebellious person. Third, Jesus presented the message of grace and pardon, of salvation full and free. While Jonah's message was that of doom. Though a call to repentance is certainly implied, the emphasis was on yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Fourth, the message of Jesus was fortified by many miracles in which prophecy was being fulfilled. While Jonah's message certainly contained no miracles other than he came out of the belly of the fish, but the Ninevites didn't know that. So his message contained no miracles or other authenticating signs to authenticate Jonah's message. And fifth, the message of Jesus is being brought to his own people who had enjoyed so many spiritual advantages. While Jonah's message was being people with none of the advantages that the scribes and Pharisees and other followers had experienced. And so what's the end result? The heathen Ninevites will condemn the hypocritical Pharisees. Those without the covenants of promise, who were without hope and without faith, found their salvation in a merciful God. While those who had been given every opportunity to repent rejected God's Son and will utterly face God's judgment. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something far greater than any Old Testament prophet is here. Something far greater than any teacher of the law is here. Something far greater than any king, any emperor, any priest is here. And he is Jesus Christ, the King of heaven, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace. And he is here. And he is offering salvation to you this very morning to the Jews of the first century. Won't you come to Christ today? Won't you turn from your sin? Won't you come to Jesus this day and taste and see that he is good? Now, not only is something greater than Jonah here, but one last verse, just to add on as an addendum to the sermon, is this, something greater than Solomon is here. 
Look at verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole story of Solomon and the queen of the south. But basically, he's saying, hey, just like this happened with Jonah and the Ninevites, this same thing happens with the queen of the south and with the, with the Solomon and Israel, the queen of the south is a reference to the queen of Sheba. The story is told in 1 Kings 10, 1 through 13, that there was a courageous word of the fame of Solomon. And so she came from afar to test him with hard questions. In fact, she traveled some 1,200 miles across the desert to pay homage to Solomon. She was a wealthy queen who had traveled with a great entourage of servants and advisors. She crossed the Arabian desert with camels bearing spices, large amounts of gold, and precious stones. And when she got to Solomon, she poured out her heart to him and asked every question that she had ever had. And the Bible says that he answered every one, so much so that she was out of breath. She didn't have another thing to say because Solomon uh, fully answered every question that she had ever had. And then we read this, 1 Kings 10, 6 through 9 says, And she said to the king, The report was true, that what I had heard in my own land of the words of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came, and with my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Charity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Then she says this, Blessed be the Lord your God, who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Listen, this woman had need of nothing except the wisdom of God. And when she heard it explained by Solomon and saw it lived out in his kingdom, she blessed the Lord God and recognized that true justice and righteousness comes only from God. The Jews of Jesus' day had the truth right there in front of them while the queen of the south had to travel over a thousand miles across the desert to hear it. The Jews, of course gave Jesus nothing, while the queen of Sheba gave enormous presents out of her royal treasure. The Jews had many religious advantages, while the queen of Sheba merely had heard reports and she came. The scribes and the Pharisees had access to one who was far wiser, far better, and far greater than even Solomon the Great, while the queen of the south had access to an imperfect man who would point her to the perfect wisdom of God. And yet, this queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and condemn the generation of Jews who rejected Jesus Christ. And when I read this, I tremble. I tremble for our own generation. Don't you? It is true that Jesus isn't present in this day, and he's not physically present on earth right now, but there is far more evidence from creation, from the word of God, and from your conscience that God is drawing those who are lost to himself. And my plea for you on this day is that you would not allow the king of Nineveh and the Ninevites or the queen of the south and the queen of Sheba, as she's known, to rise up and condemn you. That rather on this day, at this very moment, 
that you would see Jesus for all that he is, that you would no longer demand a sign from him, that you would no longer demand that he do anything to serve you, but rather you would look to the sign of Jonah, which has already been fulfilled in its entirety as Jesus died on Friday afternoon, and that he was in the grave all day Saturday, and early on Sunday morning, he arose. Jesus lives, and he lives to bring salvation to a lost and dying world. And I'm calling you this day, don't put it off any longer. Don't be a skeptic any longer. Come to Christ this very day, and he will receive you as a child of his own. This morning, don't let the Ninevites or the queen of the, uh, anyone else rather, uh, condemn you for your unbelief. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus Christ. And if you do so, you will be saved. Now, if you'll just look for a second at these take-home questions, I think they're significant, and I want you to go over them together with your family as you kind of review the sermon that you've just heard. Number one, have you ever asked God for a sign? If so, do you see how this may be something that Jesus would condemn instead of encourage? Number two, what was the sign of Jonah? What lessons should we learn from Jonah and from how the Ninevites responded to Jonah's message? And number three, how is the Savior similar to and yet infinitely greater than Jonah and Solomon? What could have the Jews learned from the Ninevites and from the queen of Sheba? This message is about Jonah. What will you do with the gospel that's been preached to you this day? I call you to repent, to put your faith in Christ, and to worship our living Savior. And it could happen in your heart and in your life this very day. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dig in your word, to see the beauty of what it means to become a Christian, that we can learn even from Jonah, that we can learn even from the Queen of Sheba, that we can learn from how the Ninevites responded to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that on this day, you would be exalted in our hearts. I pray, God, for every skeptic that might be listening in this morning, that you would help them to doubt no longer. God forbid that we would ever demand you to do anything in order to save our soul or to prove to us your resurrection power. We know that Jesus Christ fulfilled every prophecy and that he did perform as his parting installment of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that he indeed is the Son of God. We thank you for the love that we see through this message this morning. It's a warning to us that we wouldn't be condemned, but it's also an invitation to us that on this day, we could come out of darkness, out of shame, out of guilt, out of inadequacy, out of our fears, and that we would come to Christ and that we would see that he's alive and that his steadfast love is demonstrated to us through the resurrection. And so on this day, as we contemplate this message, and as we examine our hearts before you, have your way in us this day. Save the lost. Encourage the saints. Bring revival to our hearts as we worship the risen Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.